Hey guys, it's Gary Vay, Nurchuk, and this is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey guys, it's Gary V. Uh, so finally, finally, Planet of the Apps has launched. And so I would highly recommend all of you go to apple.com and check out the first preview episode and also check out my other content because there's a hack to get three, it's not really the hack, you can get three months of Apple Music which will allow you to watch the entire series. I hope you check it out. Please go to Twitter and tell me what you think about the first episode or two if you're at that point. Enjoy the podcast today. So the way that this is gonna work is I'll open it up with a few directed questions for you, Gary, and then after about, you know, 15 minutes or whenever we get really bored, we're gonna um, move into the audience on the cr- with the, using the crowd mic did, did, did app. You ju- did you just say that I was gonna be boring in the first 15 minutes? Yes. No, I said that after we get bored with <laughs> my questions, we're gonna <laughs> move on to audience questions. Um, but I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that um, by inviting you here, yes. uh, especially to kick off, this is kind of where we stop being polite and we start getting real, right? And um, my first question for you is, is um, kind of a generic question, okay. but the question is how powerful is the combination of purpose and innovation? And I'm asking this because I think that we need to hold ourselves accountable. Like, is this just another cheesy conference theme that doesn't mean anything, or does it actually mean, like, from your perspective, What's the power in that combo? Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's both. It's a cheesy conference theme and it's real, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, innovation purpose, th- th- these are very c- clear, I mean, it's kind of like the value of oxygen or, you know, like, like of, of course, like anybody who's sitting here that doesn't think that innovation matters or disrupts or is a key of how we uh, you know, evolve as people or that it's a hell of a lot better to have a purpose behind what you're doing than not is, um, is tone deaf to the reality of what creates upside both as a human and as a business. Yeah, so then it's just about implementation, right? Like how do we do this and so... Meaning execution? Yeah, execution, implementation. So, so I know a lot of you don't know who I am unless you saw me two years ago. I'm, I get a lot of flack in the technology space. I was an early investor in Facebook and Twitter and Uber and did really well and have a lot of street cred in that world. And in that world, all of them are super upset with me because I always say that ideas are crap, right? Ideas are crap because I get 10,000 emails a week from people that want me to invest in their companies and they tell me that they have the greatest idea of all time. Everybody in here has an idea. The amount of times somebody comes up to me and goes, oh, I had the Uber idea before it happened. Great, what do you want, a cookie? Like, 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 like ideas are completely, completely, completely worthless unless you execute against those ideas. And you can sit here and tell me what your purpose is, but unless you go and execute against it, it's no different than something like an idea which is completely meaningless without fundamental execution. Okay, all right, so a lot of us here do have ideas, but one of the biggest roadblocks And we do want cookies too. Yes. But one of the biggest. By the way, on, on that note, I do this a lot. That setup in the back with the candies and the stuff—that's pretty legit. So let we <laughs> we should clap up the candy selection. Yeah. I'm into that. I didn't even see that setup. It's yummy. You, it's you yummy back there. I'm telling you. All right. So if you want All a right. piece of candy because you have ideas, that's your spot. Yes. But 
Um, what if that's a roadblock for us? Like, how do we get other people on board with our ideas? You mean within the organization? Right, because a lot of these folks are going to go home in three days. They're sure. Be pumped up about the things they've heard here. Sure. And, and like Sam mentioned, everyone's going to say, oh, you went to that conference. <laughs> yeah, so, so over the last seven years, um, I, I built my family's liquor store into one of the large e-commerce wine businesses in America. I went out and started investing in companies that did well, and then seven years ago I decided that I was gonna build a client service agency to help the biggest brands in the world understand where the world was going, how to market. You know, the days of making TV commercials and print advertising are not dead, but they're waning, they're very overpriced by comparison to some of the opportunities that we see in Facebook environments and things of that nature. And the thing that I didn't know, because I'm an entrepreneur, when I make all my decisions, I just have to go home, look myself in the mirror, make a call, and then go and move. Right. I, I've, I've had to deploy an enormous amount of empathy to understand how many of you don't have that ability. And so, there's a lot of different ways to answer your question. And I used to be really frustrated with everybody here because I didn't think they had enough gusto to go home and do it. Now I'm at a place where I mainly blame the CEOs of all the companies that they work for, or the board, or, or Wall Street for creating 90-day behavior because everybody maps towards their stock price. There's a million different ways to go about it. Look, I think the number one thing you can do is actually the best advice I have for human beings, which is communicate. Whether it's your spouse, or your children, your parents, or something you care about, communication is the game. Figuring out how to be politically correct is not the answer. Figuring out how to tell people what you believe the company should be doing in a respectful manner, that's the game. And so look, my, my belief is that 98% of the people in this room can't do anything with what they learned this weekend. I mean it. Mm-hmm. It's not fun to say, but it's true. I now work with enough big companies and I understand, and more importantly, the stuff that I most believe in and where the, in- look, I think the one thing we're all grounded in is the end consumer's attention. You have a, you have a branding issue. We talked about this two years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm here two years later. I looked at the Google searches. I looked at the social media mentions. People still don't know what credit unions are. Mm-hmm. Like, let's cut to the chase. You have a comms issue as an industry, yeah. let alone as your individual companies. And so the really sad part, and we have financial service clients and alcohol brands and government stuff. Like, I work with this. There's way too many people in this room and definitely the logos that they work for that use compliance as an excuse for not doing what's right in a 2016 environment. And so, you know, what should they do? They should tell people what they believe within their organization, top, down, left, right. The truth is, most people actually don't know what they actually wanna do. We're living in a world right now of headline readers. The majority of people in here that really understand the tactical executions within these new communication platforms are almost non-existent. You might have read an Ad Age article or the Wall Street Journal about what's happening in Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, but do you yeah. really know how it works? Or it's like, oh, we'll just hire a young person right. to do Facebook. Right, we're gonna hire Facebook. the 24-year-old. <laughs> a millennial. She knows. <laughs> and the problem with that is that young people are often inexperienced with strategy. Let's say, okay, so. quick, who's got an idea? Raise your hand if you have an idea. Come on, I don't believe this. No one has an idea? <coughs> okay, I'm at the wrong conference. <laughs> that could be a problem. That is a big problem. Gary, we're gonna have to rewind. <laughs> How do you get an idea? <laughs> no, no, look, I think everybody has an Just idea. Kidding. Nobody wants to raise their hand because they, they know that I'm crazy enough to jump out here and maybe punch them in the face. <laughs> um, so I, resp- I have empathy to why they didn't want to raise their hands, but go ahead, where were you gonna go with that? So, everyone, yeah, so, so everybody I, has I, an idea. Let, let me save you time. They all have ideas. Next. I wanted to let them to leave their hand if they've actually told somebody about it. 
Look, the problem is it's not their fault. I used to think it was their fault. It's not their fault. They don't work in organizations that fester an environment or a culture that actually rewards that kind of behavior. Now, don't use that as an excuse though. <laughs> you know, because that's the fun thing to clap on. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's the man, it's the machine. Like, like, all of you should quit and start your own companies if you have such a good idea. Hmm. Okay. Don't are, laugh. I mean, that's, are, what, that's what I did. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> and and, and actually, too. funny enough, it was actually your web 2.0, do what you love talk, yes. was one of those big triggers. It's like, do, you know, one of the things that's really thinking about is we talk about purpose, and I, and I opened this with as well, is find your purpose. What's the problem that you find a deep, intrinsic purpose and want to solve it? If that means leaving your credit union, sorry, CEOs out there, but that might be one of the options. You know, it's funny. It's the way, it's funny how you... you uh, positioned my talk, right? We're gonna get real, it's gonna get uncomfortable. My purpose when I publicly speak is, to be very frank, I'm just hopeful that I can break through to one person in this room. I'm very practical about how this goes. I do think people get inspired and think differently in an offsite and things of that nature, but I have empathy and understanding and understand how the world works. In an entrepreneurial event, I actually think a lot of things can go and happen. They just don't have the friction or the red tape um, but when you work within an organization, it's harder to make change, especially if you don't run it. And so I would tell you that sharing content has worked. One of the things that I've seen really work, like now we're kind of, instead of pontificating and peacocking, let me answer this specifically. If you really care about this and you believe in certain theories, I would find these videos and articles online and I would share them via email within your organization, chipping away like a woodpecker over and over with that content has actually brought a lot of change with a lot of big organizations. I also think things like this, but on a company-wide level where you bring in people that are thinking about the world differently than you with senior leadership at the event has been a very remarkable way to do change. It makes me sad that my company has done two or three or four years of good work, sold a lot of products for clients, but we may move the needle just a little bit, and then maybe one keynote that I do with leaders moves the organization 10x. And so, I don't like that because I feel like that's overvaluing sizzle over steak, but it's the reality of how human behavior works. So I do think if you have the power to create off-site events or program information to senior leadership in whatever environment, um, you know, uh, one thing that somebody took from advice from a talk like this, she joined the committee that puts together the end of the year off-site and then programmed a bunch of characters that looked like me and it was the most meaningful <laughs> thing that happened to that organization. They changed their behavior and they're having one of their best years in 17 years right now as a publicly traded company. So there's, there's things to do. It's fun to clap that the man doesn't let you and your organization doesn't support it. But at the end of the day, um, we should really put our big girl, big boy pants on and try to figure out how to make it happen. So that's obviously to the individuals. We've got a question here that's come through. I want you to answer this to the CEOs of these companies. The question is, how can they foster more entrepreneurial culture internally? Force it. Being a CEO is being a dictator. Create the rules. Simple. More, more questions. <laughs> Bring it on, Sally, Scott. you're the CEO. Make the yeah. rules force everybody to spend 20% of their money on things that don't have an ROI that is scored within internal are things that you've never done before and reward people for the behavior of spending 20% of their time and money on something that you can't measure or that you've done historically. You just solved it. There you go. Go do that. 
Simple. So just a quick reminder, everyone, you can ask Gary and a by question. The way, by the way, I apologize. Right. This is important to me. I'm the CEO of my company. I have 650 employees. I tell them that they get scored on culture and emotional intelligence over bringing me money, over doing the best work, da, 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 da. It is the North Star. The North Star that people get rewarded for is how they play with the other girls and boys within the organization because I like continuity because continuity leads to speed. I think speed is the most important thing in business. And then when we reward it, where the nicest people get raises and promotions, even though they may be a B talent, and the guy who's an A talent, but is a little bit of a douchebag, doesn't get promoted, <laughs> that everybody starts believing what I actually care about. Because being a CEO is a dictatorship, so I make the rules, and then I act on them. So go do that. So just a quick reminder, everyone, you can ask Gary questions through the uh, Think16 app, uh, and I will come up here on my little tablet here, so if you have a question, do punch it through, through the application. There's, a, there's no more. There's I feel no, like no. We're actually running out. Oh, quickly. I would love for, for so more Gary, crowd questions for this, but one, I, of, the, one of the traps. Will you jump in the audience and ask questions? Because I think that yeah, you know, it might a be crowd a, serve. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. So let me just let me just move it back. Yes. Um, because I think a lot a lot of people I see people nodding their heads like yeah yeah um we do have a comms issue. What about the folks who are like, the number one problem in my organization is communications, but I don't know anything about communications. It's not my specialty or technology. I don't know anything about technology. I'm, sort of, I'm like, I'm an accountant. I'm an engineer. I don't, you know, I mean, yeah. what about those folks? Well, first, they may not be right about comms being a problem because if they're not experts in it or understand it, they may, as a focus group of one, think that the organization's not doing the best job, but first they want to be grounded in actually knowing the craft or what's happening. I mean, look, there's a lot of organizations that are getting a lot of ROI from their traditional media spends and things of that nature. It's just that they haven't put themselves in a position to test direct mail or sales-driven organizations or whatever they may be doing against some of the new behaviors. You know, I think they go and talk to their counterparts within your organizations, and I think they tread lightly, which is like, hey, Catherine, I know this isn't my domain, but have we thought about doing these other things, or what are we doing about those things? I'm curious as a consumer of where we're going. I mean, again, it's just good old-fashioned communications. But I do think it's dangerous when you, when you don't have cross-disciplines. I mean, it's amazing to me how all 650 people that work for me have plenty of ideas of what the CEO should be doing, right, right. but it's really easy to say that when you're not the last line of defense and you don't have all the context to why. What's the hardest thing about um, being a CEO and trying to get an organization to change, culture change? It's lonely. It's, it's hard. Yeah. You know, being a CEO is hard, you know, especially when it's your business. You know, if I'm a CEO in corporate America, I'm a hell of a lot more interested because even if you fail, you still get enormous cash bonuses on your way out. So that's interesting. Yeah. That I like. Yeah. Being an entrepreneur of an independent company like myself is if I stink, we go out of business and you don't get the bonuses and you don't get the accolades. And you know, my business, my life is predicated on headaches. You know, 20 minutes before I got here, I was in my hotel room here. It's so beautiful here. I don't know if you saw the ocean. It's gorgeous. Everyone's having a good time. There's candy for days in the back room. And what am I doing? I'm in, I'm in my room dealing with four major headaches, problem after problem after problem. Plus, I'm an HR-driven CEO, so I like to get into the muck. So, you know, meaning, like, I really fundamentally care about their opinions on, you know, I'm really the head of HR, even though I just hired a chief heart officer to really enforce HR. But... You know, mom, mom, I could be on a call in a couple hours. That's Susan who says, hey, Gary, Karen's trying to ruin me. You know, that could be like 40 minutes of my day. Right. You know. <laughs> um, so, you know, 
what's it like to be a CEO? It, it's lonely, you know, listen, it's really fun to be able to clap up like, yeah, it's the machine, it's the man. I stood in front of my entire 75 person office in LA and said, look, just so you understand, everything that is wrong with this company is my fault, all of it, because I empower all the other people that are screwing up, right? So, so you know, how is it? For me, I love it. It's, you know, I love the action, I'm an entrepreneur. It's, it's my oxygen, I couldn't do anything else. I've never worked for anybody else. I don't know another gear, it's my DNA. But it's not that easy. Like, we're living through the greatest era of fake entrepreneurship right now in America because everybody in their 20s is popping out and they're the next Mark Zuckerberg and we have 99% of those companies about to go out of business once the next financial crisis, which I hope happens soon, comes so that we can wipe out all this fake entrepreneurship and all this bull crap, but, you know, but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, you look at the universities in America right now that have entrepreneurship at the forefront, Babson, UPenn, they have the highest rate of suicide because a lot of kids right now think that it's just so easy to, like, when did this happen? When did everybody just think they can build a million dollar business just because you live in America and you're 24 and you have a hoodie? Right. <laughs> and, and you I go, yeah. I should have worn a hoodie. <laughs> yeah, we were right? thinking about wearing matching hoodies. <laughs> no, but but, but this, is what's, this is what's happened. Like there's a, there's a stunning conversation because entrepreneurship is very Americana, it's very hot mm-hmm. right now, but being a micro industry celebrity, it's crazy to me how much the entrepreneur is being put on a pedestal. I'm feeling it enormously and and I think it's dangerous because I don't think people think they can just be LeBron James. I don't think people think they can just be Beyonce. I don't think they can think they can just be these things. Yet for some reason we're in this place right now where we think we can just build these million dollar businesses. And entrepreneurship is a skill. It's a talent. It's like, it's, it's, you know, most are born with it. You could be better at it, but to be a great one. Um, and, then, and then we have a crazy conversation around income. Like, the fact that the bottom of the 1% earners in this country make $400,000 a year, yet all these 20-year-olds think that a million dollars a year is like the baseline for like maybe being in the game, we are just completely in outer space right now on this conversation. Yeah. Interesting. I was going to change gears. Someone's actually okay. reading your blog live while you're on stage. Okay. So we've got a question on your blog. It says, in your last post, you talk about using empathy to make a sale. Yes. How can this audience use empathy in their daily business? I think, I think empathy is the greatest uh, trait that I was gifted by my mother. Uh, and, uh, and I use it every day. I think it makes me a great salesperson. I think way too many organizations don't deploy empathy ever. Uh, and, and most of all, not on their end consumer. They, they, most of you think way too much inside of a bubble and you get into a room and you whiteboard in things that are in your best interest but not in the end consumer's best interest. So empathy is completely left at the, at the garbage before you walk into the door. And for me, I try to run my organization and my offerings and when I sold wine and when I sell books and when I sell client services and whatever I do for the rest of my life, my goal is always how do I deploy 51% of the value of this transaction to the other party um, and I use empathy. I try to understand why. This organization needs to take a step back and understand why nobody in America knows what a credit union is. That would be the first step to a lot more money made for everybody in this room. Not you're emotional to why it's not happening, not that it should be happening, not succumbing to it's happening, but understanding why it's happening 
And then that would help, and the way to do that is to deploy empathy and understand what's happening in people's day-in, day-out lives that isn't allowing us to penetrate them with the messaging that describes what we do for a living. And what are some of the techniques you use to, to gain you know, an empathetic understanding of the consumer? Like if you were in the credit unions, would you do consumer polls? Would you go talk to students? Or how do you actually do that, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, I think what you just mentioned are non-empathetic machines doing tactics to try to fake empathy. Okay. What I would do is try to find empathetic people and empower them to do shit. Pretty simple. <laughs> I, mean, right. I mean, I mean it. Like, I don't know. Like, like you know what's funny about... <laughs> How many people, how many people in this room, I'm gonna, I wanna see this. How many people saw the big short? Great. I literally believe that marketing and running businesses in America are going, oh, if we can keep this on, it'd be amazing because I'd like to start interacting with everybody. Um, I literally believe that that's what's happening with marketing and running businesses in America right now. Everybody knows, but like nobody's doing anything about it. Like 90% of my customers are throwing their money directly in the trash. Like, like, watch this, this is gonna be fun. This, I, let, let's agree on a couple things. Let's agree that this is not a 14-year-old aged teenage girl crowd, right? Can we agree on that? Good. By show of hands, how many people in this room now when they watch television, watch it on their time? Not watching it when it actually aired, but outside of live sports, you watch on TiVo, DVR, Netflix, you know, on demand, raise your hands. Oh, weird, everybody. <laughs> How many of you, when given the option, fast forward every single commercial? Raise your hands. Everybody. And even if you're lucky enough, excuse me, even if my clients at Toyota, Unilever, Pepsi are lucky enough that you get a commercial shown to you because I don't know, you dropped your remote control off the bed, right? (laughs) Even if that happens. The second something goes into commercial, every one of you grabs this. My friends, attention is the only thing that matters. Before you can tell me how great your credit union is, how great your sneakers are, how great your book is, how great your service is, how great your jam that you make in your home is that you wanna sell me, before you do any of that, you have to have my attention and then you can tell me your story. The organizations in the world, organizations in this room, are throwing good money directly in the trash because they're marketing like it's 2009, 2004, 1997, or 1972. This is an old crowd. And none of you are consuming commercials and $80 billion are being spent to make them and distribute them. Nobody here is going home and carefully going through their direct mail. And, and, and so, you know, I don't know what people think is happening. Like, like, you're, like I don't understand how this, you know your same tactics aren't bringing results. Like, you, you know that that trade show that you go to every year and spend a ton of money on, on your awesome booth, is not returning the same results, yet we just keep doing it, as if nobody gives a crap. Isn't that sort of like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, right? We've all heard that saying. A hundred percent. And so, I'm sorry, people always say to me in marketing, like, I'm such a disruptor, I'm so crazy, I'm so this. (laughs) 
I think it's crazy to make commercials in 2017. Like, it's not practical. I think I'm quite practical. I know that an enormous, how many people here look at their Facebook profile and their feed and their page? Raise your hands. How many of you use Facebook? Raise it high, don't be scared. I just know you're there. And I know it can sell you stuff there. Facebook is selling billions of dollars of stuff per month. Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how you think you act one way at home, right? But then when you put your suit on and go to work, you have different strategies because of the room that you're in. Yet, when you leave, all your, the fastest growing demo of selfies on Instagram are 45-year-old women. Oh yeah. Any 45-year-old women taking yes. selfies? Yes, hell yeah, cougar <laughs> selfies for days. <laughs> Every, 50% of this room in 24 months is gonna be living in Snapchat. 80% of it does, doesn't even consider using Snapchat right now. So here, let's, 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 this is a great segue. Who here uses Snapchat? So Gary, how... How many people here have never heard of Snapchat? It's okay, raise your hands. That in itself is pretty impressed. That in its maybe, you know what, in 18 months. I mean, it's moving faster than I thought. Go ahead. How can credit unions use Snapchat? Well, first of all, credit unions today have to decide if they want to court 13 to 25-year-olds. Do you? Great. Well, then you better figure it the hell out. <laughs> because I think a lot of you did, uh, the reason almost everybody but that one random dude has not, has heard of Snapchat is because anybody in this room that has a 13 to 22 year old anything in their lives, granddaughter, grandson, daughter, nephew, niece, knows that that human being lives in one place, their phone and on two things, Snapchat and Instagram. So how are you gonna tell them about your thing? How are you gonna tell them? Like, how are you gonna get to them? You're not, and you're gonna spend it on bull crap. If you wanna get to 13 to 25, now here's the important thing. I believe Snapchat is going through the same thing Facebook did. It's 13 to 25 now, but when we wake up at 18 months and it's 13 to 45, I have a funny feeling a lot more of you are interested in that 25 to 45 year old demo just as well. And that's where people get caught. You don't project. Everything's predicated on today, but it's really not, because if you look at your behavior, most of your companies are marketing like it's 10 years ago. But you know, there, I mean, there's a real, I do social media consulting, right? Okay. And I have a hard time keeping up. <laughs> I really, up. you know, so the thing is, is how do we keep pace with technology and we satisfy number demand? You work. Okay. Like, sorry that it's moving fast. <laughs> like, like but, 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 but right? Like, we're all professionals here. Like, sorry. Like, sorry that the world's moving super fast. You know, some dude owned 80,000 horses when the car was invented. He lost. <laughs> so true. You know, like, like tough luck. Like innovation doesn't care about you and me. Yeah. You think I'm excited to be up at two o'clock in the morning trying to figure out Vine like I did, you know, three years ago? I actually think you are excited to be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you might Am be I right, wrong? actually. <laughs> You know what's funny? You nailed it. I am excited because I know my differentiation ship in the marketplace is that I'm willing to outwork my competition. I know that I got lucky that I wasn't born in America, so I understand how good it actually really is here, and I'm taking full goddamn advantage of it. 
but, but, but this is what I hear all the time and I know a lot of you know this, right? Like, like, and this, this is very uh, pungent to the you know, 50 and older crowd that I see in this room. Guys, I, I'm not interested in this excuse that I didn't grow up with it. I didn't grow up with it, I'm 40. When I was 18 years old, I'd spent five minutes on a computer in my entire life. I didn't grow up yeah. with it. Yeah. You didn't grow up driving, you figured that out. Yeah. You know, so this excuse that you didn't grow up with this is just not an excuse. You're more than welcome to not use it as a human being. I'm not in charge of that. But if you are in the business world and you are disrespecting these platforms, you are vulnerable. Yeah, I didn't grow up with it as more like I'm just not interested in it. No, it's just that, you know what? I don't really give a crap. I'm tired. I've been working a long time. I hate that it's changed. It's not in my best interest. I spent 20 years growing in this organization and now I know something and now the whole thing's being changed on me. I don't like that. I don't want that to happen. So I I would connect a couple of... Let's sit there. Sorry, <laughs> but let's, this is the dangerous formula that a lot of you are going through. I have empathy. You know, it stinks if you're in PR and you spent 22 years in it and you moved up the ranks and you've got all those relationships and now it doesn't matter as much. I get it. I'm not happy about it. I just don't know any other gear than dealing in reality. I wake up every morning trying to put myself out of business. What do I sell and how do I sell it and who could put me out of business? And I'd rather do that, that's how I innovate. You know how I innovate? I try to create products and services and do behavior that is the behavior that would hurt me if somebody else did it. Because it's a hell of a lot more fun to put yourself out of business than have somebody else do it for you. So I wanna connect a couple of dots here from what you've been saying. Okay. One, empathy was about understanding why something exists. Yes. And then we've got on to Snapchat. Okay. Now I know the answer to this question so I can bail out if you don't know the answer. Why does Snapchat exist? Why does Snapchat exist? Because communication is the foundation of how human beings act. And communication has gone from drawing stuff inside of caves to standing on top of mountains and making smoke signals. (laughs) Go read, go read what people wrote about the invention of the telephone. It was gonna ruin us. We made it, right? Snapchat exists because it was an ideation and an evolution of communication within the mobile device which is the single most important thing in our society. Guys, how many people here within every 24 hours including when they're sleeping are always within arm's reach of their telephone? Raise your hands high. Look at this. Not 14-year-old girls. And the important point is, 10 years ago, 50% of this audience would have sworn they'll never get a cell phone. That's right. And so there's 60-year-old dudes in here who texted a poop emoji last night. (laughs) I mean, look at this. Look at this lovely lady. She's got two technology devices, a phone and an iPad, and she's 80 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Are you on Snapchat as well? (laughs) I mean, but, but... but the point is, the point is, and obviously I was going for the laugh there, you look, you look amazing, I'm gonna kiss you on the face when I get done with this talk. <laughs> I want people to understand, you guys know this. Your parents are on this, this is real. Like how are you possibly disrespecting this still because your organization doesn't support digital spend or digital native activities? It's crazy, it's over. I don't care how you want it to be. It's the way it is. And by the way, you take the negative view on this. Let me talk to you about something that's going on in society that I know all of you have judged. You go out to a restaurant 
and you see a couple and they're having dinner and they're both on the phone and you just love to say to your partner, hey, do you see that? How sad, (laughs) right? You love that, right? You love judging, don't you, right? (laughs) Here's what I see. I see two people that 15 years ago would have had dinner together, would have sat across from each other and wouldn't have said a damn word to each other. Remember those conversations? You've seen that. Couple sitting right next to you, not a word. So you know what I think this is? It's a blessing to those two. (laughs) It is. I'm happy for those two people that they can actually be doing what they actually want to be doing. Sure. Sam, you got a question? Yes. Is this thing on? Here I am. Okay. So... This is, we talk about this, that marketers, credit union marketers, we just have to get the story out. We have this comms challenge. But what I see a lot in credit unions is that we do, that marketers are held to an ROI to push a very specific product, that they have to take that to the board, it has to get approved, it's like marketing by committee. We are kind of hamstringing our marketing teams within our credit unions that they can't just freely post on Snapchat when they wake up in the morning and say, I'm so jazzed to go to my credit union, this is my story. We, we tamp that down. That's why- How do we shift that? A, that's why so few people know about this, period. And B, you change the rules from the top. Like again, I don't, who's the CEO in this room? Raise your hand. Jeez. (laughs) One more time, just hold them up. It's on these lovely people. She's in charge. It's up to her. And, and by the way, I have empathy, listen, I've spent enormous amounts of time, and this is, this is an absolute bragging moment, I've spent enormous amounts of time in the White House with the President of the United States to go through the legalities of comms for financial institutions and other things. There's plenty that you can be doing. It's a complete and utter cop-out to use it on compliance and rules. It's that you don't understand it fully, you don't understand the ROI, and that's fine. But there's a, guys, there's a very big difference between branding and marketing and sales. They have different functions. And way too many people think that marketing and branding is sales. It's not. And sales is important. I'm a salesman. I'm a salesman who just happens to respect what branding and marketing does. Because it makes my job easier. Because Nike, and Apple, they don't transact me. These guys don't sell me. They won me on branding. I buy it mindlessly. The other thing that really pisses me off, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, we, and, and we talked about this two years ago, but I'm gonna pound it again. We lived through a four, three, two, and it's still lingering, but not as much, missed opportunity by you guys. We lived through a three to four year window where the main competitor of banks were the worst evil in our society and we didn't pounce on the moment. It's true. And so like, to be honest with you, that actually gives me very little reason or hope to think anybody here is gonna do anything about what I'm talking about. You missed the greatest opening of all time. You just let it go by. Insane. But I think it's still, I think it's still here. Not as good. Not as good, but Not definitely as good. still there. It's always there, but guess what? It's gonna cost you a hell of a lot more money. Not as easy. Like, I don't wanna let them off the hook. No rainbows here. You screwed up. 
Okay, well, I'm going to be the Pollyanna and say I, I, I think that that... Just we're, we, um, we're getting prompted on mic. We can't see the audience. If we can turn the house lights up, that would help us a lot. <laughs> okay. Hi, Gary, question for you. So, What's first of all, it's terrifying asking you a question. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, this is not my question, but it would be great if you could run for president instead of uh, the, the selection that we have. So, I, that's the next thing. Can you help me on I was born in a foreign country, so they won't let me go, but I promise you I would make a run if I could. <laughs> so my actual question is, um, I'm actually a customer of yours. I have bought wine from your um, wine site. Thank you so much. Um, I actually bought it the first time I heard you speak, and I went right out and bought some. So as a consumer of yours, I follow you on Facebook as well. Um, you've yet to reach out to me as your customer and ask me why I haven't bought from you in the last eight months. Um, so what do you do, A, to yep. um, listen to your customers, and yep. B, what do you do to um, instill and allow change from your employees within your own company? Yeah. So we have a pretty, so we've been running data on remarketing for a long time at Wine Library. So Wine Library, I haven't run actively for four years, but your second point is far more important to me because you're right, it's all about scalability, right? Like, I can't do everything myself. I can't call you necessarily. So. We ran data on remarketing to, um, to non-returning customers over a seven-year period from 1999 to 2006, and the cadence on the recall for us is actually now one year. Like, we were finding that too many customers, if we really aggressively tried to get them into the refunnel within three, six, even nine months, which is where I had it for a long time, and I think we went to a year a year ago, um, so maybe... I don't, I don't know exactly the details on your transaction. One of the things that we did four or five years ago is create a thank you department because I wrote a book called The Thank You Economy and so when you get hit up in four months, it's gonna start with a phone call because we think the human element has much more ROI than the email element and obviously there's a lot of ways to go about it but at Wine Library, we CRM you know, the 1.2 million customers that have come through the funnel through the years pretty aggressively and remarket. We even did something where I'm trying to call my own bullcrap. We just did a direct mailing piece because I always, and I mean this, I always, like, I don't, I'm not a technologist, meaning I'm not obsessed with Facebook and Snapchat. I'm obsessed with the price of attention, right? So, like, direct mail's expensive. I guess the stamp went down two cents, but... I'm, I'm always triple checking if it's still ROI positive. But to answer your question, on the Mainer Media side where we work B2B, we have 100, 200 point customers that we work with and we kind of watch their social, what do they care about? We stay very high touch. On the wine e-commerce business that has a hell of a lot more customers, our remarketing when they're out of session starts at one year and gets more aggressive at the two year point. But what's even more interesting, and I'll add on to your question because it's the right energy of a question, what we're doing with people that are in the cycle lately has been even more fascinating, which is we, we are triple downing on using technology as a gateway drug to human interaction. So we're spending a ton of time now mapping people's Instagram and Twitter accounts, figuring out what they care about, and then using that as a proxy to get them into a phone call conversation. Like actually, what would it look like if we had 80 phone people that used technology and big data to create more meaningful relationships knowing your key events. One of the things I'm building right now, it's actually done, I'm just testing it, is on your account at Wine Library, if you want to give it to me, and we're going to ask for it very black and white, no tricks, no games, we're going to say, hey, we'd like to know the birthdays and biggest events in your life, and if you want to give them to us, 
the 10 days leading up to it, we will give you recommendations on wine and free shipping predicated on anniversaries, birthdays, things of that nature, and plenty of people will think that's creepy and privacy. Way more are gonna think it's a service and good, and so hacking away, hacking away. It's an interesting flip on that, and so I've done a lot of work in the financial services sector on the negative side of this. And so insurance is the one I know the best, worst, is that insurance has such a negative conversation with the market to the point where the research I did in the US, most insurance policyholders only speak to their provider maybe one to 1.1 times a year. 75% of those discussions are negative. So it means it's a claim, a complaint, or a cancellation. So think about when you think about insurance. Everyone has, a, even as a consumer, you have a very negative perception of that brand. So every time you speak to that brand, it's like, it's like asking Gary a question. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, look, there's another thing that's emerging, guys, which is time is becoming the number one asset, right? Besides health and well-being and money, time has emerged as one of the core things in our pillar. So, you know, one of the crazy things, back to the phone thing that's interesting that we're trying to do, we're fighting a trend that I believe. Watch this. By show of hands, and remember that lying is the devil, how many people here are now mad when another human being calls them on the phone? Raise your hand. Raise it high. This is super interesting now. We're in a place now where technology has gotten into a place where you don't understand why somebody's calling you. They should email or text you and you will get back to them on your time. I mean, literally. And so, we're just living through a lot of changes in our society. Guys, this is the single biggest culture shift of communication in our society in the last 70 years. I mean, this is a big deal, this transformation to the internet age and to the mobile age. This is a major shift and it has massive repercussions on our businesses. So, I mean, what do you think is the biggest opportunity for credit unions right now, given uh, this mobile shift? Well, first, very, very honestly, I, what I'd like to do is look under the hood on a P&L in one of these CEOs and understand what they spend their money on to try to make the thing that they want to make happen. So I think the biggest opportunity is when's the last time everybody here who runs a, one of these businesses sat down and looked at every dollar deployed on people, infrastructure, marketing, the whole nine, and said, what does this penny do for me to get to what I want? The problem is that 80% of the, of the behavior that is being done by companies is things that have been accepted as tried and true or costs of business or just things that they're accustomed to. In that 80%, 50% of that stuff is vulnerable. I'd like to take that 50% and get them to start using it against modern behavior that can lead to a funnel of acquisition of the kind of clientele that they're gonna be looking for for them to be in business over the next decade. Yeah. That's what I would do. Audit. Audit. Who's got a question? Where are the mics? Question here for you, the audience. Yes. Does winelibrary.com have a mobile app? No, so we've been, we're, we're mobile optimized, but we don't have a mobile app. Um, truth be told, it's really interesting. Like, we've, uh, we've A-B tested that a little bit, but you know, I'm not running the business day in and day out anymore, and to air a little bit of dirty laundry, my dad, my dad is a cliche operator that bothers me the way he operates. You know, I'm not there every day, it's a family business. As you can imagine, there's enormous emotion around family businesses. He ran it for a while, I ran it for a while, changed the landscape of the business. I'm doing other things, and I, even though my dad knows what I do for a living and grow other people's businesses, he's pretty steadfast on doing certain things the way he wanted to do them. 
It has not worked over the last three or four years. And now finally I'm back to like doing certain things. So like that's what's happening there. This, this kind of reminds me of when you were talking before about like, so what, you know, the world is changing, just get with it. Right. Where's the point where you throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of wisdom that that older generation brings and sort of like the way we used to do things? There's, there is a wisdom that, that you have to carry with you as you adapt. Where's the line there for you? There's no blanket statement that would answer this. Do, one more time, how many CEOs in this room? Raise your hand. You know, do I believe 50% of these people should be fired? Yes. <laughs> but I just don't know which 50%, right? So, and what I mean by that is in the scenario, and obviously I'm going for shock effect with like saying that to the people that just raised their hands, but the truth is it's the ones in this room who've used wisdom and converted it into romance and being romantic about how you do things is the quickest way to go out of business. Mm-hmm. I just don't know which ones are romantic and only leveraging wisdom right? Um, and I don't know which ones are just not knowledgeable what, what the alternatives are and they're open to it, but their partners or their people in their organization haven't broken through to them and put them in that position. Yeah. Has there been a moment with you and your father where he has sort of shown you the light on something where you were like, oh, my yeah. new ways aren't working? Yeah, not when I, op- so look, I mean, I took over my dad's business. It was doing $3 million a year on 10% gross profit, which means it was making $300,000 a year before expenses. And in five years with no cash infusion, I grew it from three to 65 million in revenue. Like, I know what the hell I'm doing, but did my dad teach me things? Of course, when I was 16 years old, my dad grabbed me by the arm and said, you just bought your first wine order as a 16-year-old, bought a bunch of cases of something, and he looked at me and said, if you change your mind between today and when the order comes in, you'll drink every one of those bottles. You will not cancel that order. And he said, this is the most important thing in life. And it was the best piece of advice I've ever given because as you can tell, I'm a more refined version of myself at 40. Imagine how full of crap I was at 16. <laughs> so, 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 sure, but, but, listen, at the end of the day, results are results. You know, yeah. I knew what I was doing. There's a reason the business has been flat since I've left. There's a reason that in the last four years that I've run VaynerMedia, it's grown from three to $100 million in revenue. Like, I've got plenty of stake along with the showmanship that I deploy here on stage. I just happen to do both, but I, uh, not really. Most of the arguments my dad and I had in that eight year period where I really ran it, I won almost every one of them. That's just the truth. Because my dad is romantic and emotional. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. Because I know the market doesn't give a crap about me. Yeah, interesting. We've got a question over here. Gary, first a blatant suck up. Um, I agree with you completely about the uh, results of uh, 2008 to uh, the current uh, period. But I think the reason is, and with all due respect to co-op, that we've got a bifurcated industry. We have two trade organizations. We have multiple uh, plastic card services. We have multiple networks. We don't, te- we don't talk with one voice yep. to the American public. Yes. There are 6,500 credit unions. We yes. talk with 6,500 plus voices and we get lost in the noise. I think that's an easy way to pass on the buck. My belief is that, if there, that one of the top 10 credit unions actually did the actions and did the marketing themselves that they could have dragged everybody along. 
I mean, why didn't they? You know, the truth is, I don't want to pontificate on, on stage. I don't know. Maybe they thought that they were associated with financial institutions. I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't in their financial vested interest. Maybe they didn't understand how to make YouTube videos and Google AdWords during that time. I don't know. But what I do know is that it didn't happen. And what I do know is I've never seen a co-op move an industry. I've seen leaders within the industry do something, it worked, and then everybody followed it. So we've spoken about on the negative side of what they're not doing. What's a company in the financial services sector that's doing a good job? Um, I'm not sure. Um, you know, what, I, what I know is this. Here's what I know. And, and a lot of this is headline reading and I'm scared of that. So my, all my answers are about to be completely unofficial because I hate anointing things if I don't know under the, things under the hood. But I do know from a branding standpoint that Amex's Small Business Saturday is the kind of way we need to be thinking about it. Like the data that I've looked at, and I don't know how successful it was compared to what they spent against it to make it happen, but when you look at conversion rates of small businesses who were not happy with how much percentage Amex takes and had a lot of energy to push you towards Visa and MasterCard, over the last seven years of that Small Business Saturday campaign, they've been able to win more accounts in small businesses around the country on the branding that they're small business friendly, even though they're still taking 1.3% more of the transaction than their competitors. So that to me is interesting. You know, that to me is interesting. I think when you look at um, a firm, a, a new uh, uh, organization that lets people pay uh, on websites in, in, in installments instead of one transaction, when you look at how PayPal did customer acquisition. Um, there, there's things out there, Mint and things, that there, there, there's certain things out there, but um, the truth is I don't like to, you know, I don't spend a lot of time looking at what people are doing outside of me or my clients, even the competitors of my clients. So I'm not, I'm not sure because my North Star for doing something well isn't you liked their commercial or you liked their campaign or you thought this bank or this credit union did a nice job on Instagram. I want to know what that money that they spent on meant to their bottom line as a business. And without looking under somebody's hood and understanding that, I just don't know. So would I be right in saying you don't currently have a financial services client? So we, we do, but I'm under a lot of NDAs. <laughs> um, we have a new one. A big one, we have one of the three top banks. We literally, ironically today, while I was in the parking lot, won a massive piece of business from them. We were working with one of the top four credit card companies in America. We, we didn't see the world the same way and I'm super rich already. I don't need clients that aren't gonna do the behavior that is interesting for me to learn from. So that one ended. Who here would like to be a Gary Vaynerchuk client now? <laughs> There's a question. Question over here. Yeah, Gary, you've indicated that uh, you think that being emotional and romantic is a fatal flaw yes. in a business, but that you rely heavily on being empathetic. Yes. Can you help me parse those two concepts a little yeah. bit? Yeah, they're contradictions. So, way to sniff it out. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I, I, think that, I think that way too many people, when I say emotional and romantic, they are not respecting what the market is doing. I actually think they're completely opposite things. I use empathy to try to figure out what the market is doing and then give them what they want. And I define being romantic 
and emotional about things is something's happening that's not in your best interest in the market, but you don't want it to happen, so you create a delusional conversation with yourself making pretend it doesn't happen. Or worse, and this one's really piss, really is a big one. Or worse, you as a human being recognize that you're not gonna be in that company two or three years from now and taking money and investing in the logo's health in a decade is gonna lower the margin and profits for the company over the next two years, which means when you leave it, you don't leave with as much money personally because you weren't as profitable because you invested into the future that didn't have immediate returns. It's true, it's true. There are a lot of CEOs that run companies that know that they're not gonna be there in 24 or 36 months, that know the math behind their bonuses which are completely based on P&L profit and to be successful in six years from today, you need to deploy money to have the infrastructure and the capabilities for six years from today. The problem is you're gonna be on your yacht or playing golf and so you don't personally get benefited for the investment in the company so you as a human, and I don't blame you, humans are flawed, do behavior that's in your best interest as Rick and Sally, not in the best interest of XYZ credit union. That's real. Like, that's real. So what, what would you say would be... By the way, that's why so much doesn't happen. Yeah. It's just real. I'm glad you stood up for that. Thanks. I think that was important. I, I think it's important. And by the way, and I'm going to say this, who am I to judge? I don't get to judge. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what's happening in the game and you all know it. So we, we talked a, a little bit about, I mean, just to sort of bring this back into practical application a little bit. Um, if you were sitting in CEO position at a credit union and you were thinking, I'm out of here in two to three years, but I need to invest a decade from now, what's, what would you do? The first thing I would do back to that safe, selfish human behavior is understand that if I did everything right over the next two or three years, I'd probably sit on three really good boards of public companies and make a hell of a lot more money than what I was trying to milk out of my own company over the next three years. Okay. That's number one. That's practical. Look, doing the right thing is always the right thing. You know, we're just always looking in short-term behavior. All the VIG, the arbitrage that I live in is I'm doing marathon running behavior in a world of sprinters. I understand the energy I deploy on stage, but let me unconfuse you. I am a tortoise in a hare's costume. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> but that's what I am. Like, my decision making is based on what I think consumers are gonna be doing today and, not just today, and in 24, 36, 48 months, and I run my organizations based on that. Um, that's what I think a CEO should do. While you're getting paid and running a company, you need to think about the company not only in the short term but in the long term and you have to make those financial bets and you have to create the infrastructure for your organization to do those things. Because if you do it, you will be rewarded historically by the market of doing smart things which will then lead to enormous upside for you in the world post your being the active CEO of that company with all the other benefits that the business world grants you when you are historically correct. Mm -hmm. I don't get to sit up here and get paid a lot of money to do speaking engagements because I'm razzy or I make a joke or I'm confrontational. It's because I have results. And because you're razzy and you're fun. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's a, that's the, you know what? That's the nice to have. 
Yeah. The, the punchline, and you know this, the punchline is seven years ago when everybody was a social media expert, I'm the one who emerged and built an actual business. I'm the one that Toyota and GE and Unilever is thrilled to point to and say they helped our business too. I'm the one who sells hundreds of thousands of books in the first week when other social media experts that try to sell you social media advice come out with a book and sell a thousand copies in four months, shouldn't they use their advice to sell their book? Sure. So, so, I mean, bringing it back home, like what was something Sorry, you did seven years ago? Sorry, that's just a personal years... angry moment. <laughs> <laughs> what was something you did seven years ago that people were looking at you like, that's crazy, that everything, you're thinking, ev- everything I've I'm ever done in my life. In, in 1996, when, when I launched the third e-commerce wine business in America, people laughed at my dad for letting their kid ruin his business. Yeah. Guys, 20 years ago, a lot of you thought the internet was a fad. Let's, let's just cut to the chase if you even knew what it was. When I bought Google AdWords, my dad, it was the only thing my dad ever fought me on. Mm-hmm. He didn't want me to do it because he told me our competitors were gonna click our ads and make us pay for ads that we weren't gonna convert. Yeah. When I started my YouTube show four months after YouTube started when nobody in the world knew what it was and I was sitting in front of it tasting wine and creating content and bringing value to people, my entire organization thought I lost my mind. They didn't know what YouTube was. When I invested in and then spent 10 hours a day on Twitter in 2007 and eight, everybody thought I was stupid. So, I mean, it sounds to me like when we drill down, it's not so much I'm in short-term thinking I wanna sit on my yacht, but like it takes a lot of courage to be doing the thing, to be sitting in front of the camera and everyone thinks you're nuts, right? And so how do we instill, you know, a more bold, a a boldness Sitting in in front of the camera is a different thing because you have to have the, you know, vanity and, and other things that one would need to like put themselves out there and I recognize those traits. The Twitter thing's more interesting. I thought it was gonna be important and so I put the time to become a practitioner, not a headline reader. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take courage to do it, it takes time. time. It takes time and I promise you if the CEOs in this room audited what they do with their time, they could find 20% of it that's being spent on ludicrous stuff that doesn't bring any more value anymore mm-hmm. and they could deploy that to learning this new world and then becoming practitioners so that she and he can be the judge and jury of the partners and the heads of marketing and actually hold them to a standard that needs to be held to in today's environment. Guys, technology is not a sector. Technology is all-encompassing. This is not a nice-to-have or a division. This is the world we now live in. It's going to eat up everything. It got to bookstores early, It's gotten to hotels and taxis and limos recently. It's gonna get to everything. Just a matter of time. We've done that. I mean, there is not one part of a credit union's business. Yeah, let's get this to the next question. Um, I just have a statement, not a question. I'm a CEO of a credit union, and we do think long term. Yes. This is not the American Bankers Association. Yes. And we do think long term. Yes. Uh, Bankers do think quarter by quarter by quarter, so... That's number one. Number two, there is a missed opportunity. And, and real quick, my friend, I don't think in the advice that you're giving people, because I'm grounded in that, I mean in running the business and where I understand that. Okay. Right. And so I've got two branches that won't be profitable until after I'm gone. Right. Okay? And, you know, I, we're not thinking... Respect. We're not thinking short term. So, so the other thing is, in 2008, there was a missed opportunity. It's back. Okay? And the reason is because it's election year. Secondly, big short, you mentioned... Yes. Everybody understood that, understood that, right? Yes. So, uh, election year, big short. Uh, 
the budget deal in 2015 yes in december the bankers pulled uh dodd frank out everybody missed it so if we had one voice speaking about that we've got another opportunity so just want to let you know that we are bifurc bifurcated i do believe that too and uh, that's a problem but if we did have a one voice yes that went after this yes the American public would understand that. Well, so let, let, let's stay on this because I agree sure. with you and I appreciate the energy sure. you're bringing. Yesterday, yesterday, a hundred different videos on Facebook with no money whatsoever, hundreds of dollars of ad placement, reached over 10 million people on organic virality based on its subject matter. Your ability tomorrow as an organization to make a video on this story to educate the American people without any of your friends in here joining you, spending $1,000, $2,000 to produce it, whether you, and I think you come across great, so if you wanna do it or if somebody else wants to do it, fine, and then spending another $2,000 on ad spend against fans of Bernie Sanders, fans of Donald Trump, fans of Hillary, you know, the political or other different segmentations, fans of banks, fans of organizations, fight the bank, America for this, what have you, all segmentations that you can target on Facebook if you did that five, seven, eight times, if you get one that goes viral, mazel tov, you've won. If not, if you spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you could blanket the entire country and give them that message. That's what I'm passionate about, which is that it doesn't cost a lot of money in 2017 to hit the American people. It's just that we're not respecting the marketing tactics that can get us there. I agree, and I'll just finish with this, that uh, again, we're short we're not short-term thinkers, we're long-term. And finally, bring back Glass-Steagall and stop talking about taxation. You may not understand what I just said, but I think the rest of the room did. Bring back Glass-Steagall, attack the bankers, because I'm tired of getting attacked. Good Thank for you. Good oh, luck. I want to add on that. It's the one trend. When, when that, can you bring that gentleman back? I have a real question, because I'm actually curious for my own education. When he, when he says he's tired of getting attacked, is there a feeling within the industry that the American, the, the end consumer, sir, when you said yes. you're tired of getting you want attacked. want me to come up and sit down? I'm sorry? You want me to come so, up and sit yeah, down? Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> when, when you said you're, I, I was fascinated by that end statement. When you said you're tired of getting attacked, do you yes. feel that the American consumer has the credit union in that position? No. Okay. I, I think the, I, I think they've long since, uh, it's like they've habituated to that message, mm -hmm. but we have a huge opportunity here. This is all going on right now where bankers, you know, they've got no firewall between deposits and loans and right. selling it off to the world. Right. It's nothing's changed. No, uh, listen, you're, pre you're preaching. I, I made a reference about I can't wait for the next one and, you know, but real quick, just for my own education because I'm curious. When you said I'm tired of being attacked. Yeah, the debate between banks and credit unions is all about taxation, which is meaningless to everybody. It's uh, 2.7 billion to the to the treasury, right. which is a, a teardrop. But think of how much money the banks cost oh, American people. You're, pre you're preaching, and the message is not getting. Do you out. think any normal American knows about this debate the, between the credit unions they, and banks? They, I think they understand that banks created it. I think there's a a message problem with regards to getting that message out to the American people from the credit union industry. It's not there. It's empty. And, and so this yeah. is, this is add it's huge. Your opportunity get... here is, so there is actually a large movement, it's predominantly coming out of Canada at the moment, of a consumer movement back against the ethics of how banks make money. 
The reality is Gary has a spare thousand bucks, I need a thousand bucks. There's this other company in between that makes that transaction happen. And so that, particularly in the unsecured lending space, the ethics of how much margin they make to make that transaction is getting questioned in a number of markets. There is a 13-year-old girl that has an amazing YouTube video that questions how banks make money on unsecured lending. That has created a whole tidal wave of consumer negative sentiment around how banks make money. Which is why, if you look at the most successful fintech startups today, they're all about Blockchain how do we connect that. to individuals. Of course. You know, it's P2P lending, it's P2P foreign but, exchange. But, but I think it's dangerous. You know, the context of me saying we missed an opportunity, it's not about bashing the banks. It's about getting people to understand what we bring to the table. Yeah. This is not a, we need to spend money bashing them out or amplifying that 13-year-old girl's video. It's how are we communicating to the end consumer to create consideration for me to give you my money versus the alternatives that have out-marketed and out-positioned your organizations in the marketplace. And to me, when you look at what's happening in marketing today, the brands, and this is happening absolutely in the political races, everyone's like, how is this all, how did Obama happen? How's this Trump thing happening? Easy, they're using the things I'm talking about. This is not complicated, right? How did Under Armour catch up to Nike? Easy, they're using the things that I'm talking about. How did Honest Company and Method become real competitors to Johnson & Johnson and Unilever and Procter and & Gamble? Easy, they're using the things that I'm talking about. So it's about the opportunities in a digital environment to create content and target people with the messaging that we want them to know. That tactic and understanding that religion is the white space. Yeah. So I'm going to so wrap it up and say, I, I don't like it. So Sam would actually love this. The message you want to tell your consumer is Sam already put it up in the very first purpose video. That should be your brand. That was, I mean, that was an amazing video, Sam. I, I applaud you missed it. Sorry, Gary. It's all about the purpose of a credit union. But that is the brand. That's the narrative you need to make the market understand. It's already there. Or, real quick, because I'll just leave a tactical thing for you. It's not. We don't know. But you can spend very little money deploying this in a Facebook video environment and reaching tens of millions of people and seeing how they react to it in the comments, qualitative feedback at scale, and you can make 40 different messages. Like for the credit union, they don't, you guys don't need you know, the milk campaign. You don't need one shining star that's gonna save it all. You need to have a process that makes 87 different potential stories and videos go through the Facebook environment that has hundreds of millions of users on it and see what people react to and then triple down on that. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. I'm gonna um, stop us here, but I think that this is a great place to, to end. There's, I think, limitless opportunity. I have sort of a glass half full here and I appreciate those comments. and. We, you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought, so we're going to take some time to chomp on that. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you, Gary Vaynerchuk, for, for having being me. with us. Thank you. Guys, thanks for listening to the audio experience. Two things. One, make sure you're watching my vlog on YouTube, and two, hit me up on the DM. It's going down on the DM. <laughs>